This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning again and Happy New Year. We're starting a new sermon series today in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So the, the book of Ephesians, if you, if you have studied that before. And I had a question I wanted to start us with. Have you ever heard of DEFCON levels? DEFCON levels. Uh, it means defense readiness conditions. And if you've been around here a while, you know that I know most of my information about the world through movies, uh, which means some of it's just patently false. And so I had to actually look up a lot of this information. But I learned what DEFCON levels were from a 1983 movie titled War Games. Now, War Games came out before I was born, but my dad loved it, and so I watched it a lot growing up. And it is an excellent movie, uh, if you have not seen it. It is PG, but it's a 1983 PG, so parents be forewarned. Uh, and in this movie, here's the, here's the summary, a young computer whiz kid accidentally connects into a top-secret supercomputer, which has complete control over the U.S. nuclear arsenal. This computer challenges him to a game between America and Russia, and he innocently starts the countdown to World War III. Now, that is, doesn't sound like an exciting movie. I don't, you know, I mean, it's, we're locked in. Now, this movie fictionalizes and dramatizes real events that happened at NORAD. I also had to look up what NORAD is, North American Aerospace Defense Command. And it's now based somewhere else, but it was based in Cheyenne Mountain Complex. And these real events happened in 1979 and 1980 where they really did have some haywire computers that really were giving false information. Now, I don't think it caused them to raise any DEFCON levels because I think they knew what was going on, but the movie kind of dramatizes and fictionalizes this a little bit more. The movie takes us from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. Now, for reference of what this means, these defense readiness positions of what people need to be ready to do in the military, 9-11 was DEFCON 3. So as you move up the scale, 9-11 was three. The only time that DEFCON 2 has been used domestically was the Cuban Missile Crisis in the opening phase of Desert Storm. It's the only time. Each level defines a specific security, activation, and response scenarios for the personnel in question. It's a readiness level. How ready do our personnel need to be? Today we're going to be starting this 14-week study on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And part of what he is doing is actually asking the Ephesians, are you ready? Are you ready for what's coming, Ephesian church? Are you ready for the DEFCON levels to be raising? And let's be honest, doesn't it feel like the DEFCON labels, levels against the Christian church and the Christian faith are changing? Doesn't it feel like things are getting more intense? Doesn't it feel like there's threats from the inside and the outside. Inside, maybe there's declining attendance. Children aren't staying in the church. From the outside, it seems that there's secularism and pluralism that are dominating. The DEFCON levels are rising. Are we ready? Ephesians is going to walk us through what it looks like to be ready, not only in doctrine, but also in practice. And the first two verses of Ephesians that we're going to be looking at today set the stage in some sense of what we need to know to be ready. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. 
Please be seated. You guys notice that the lights are kind of doing weird stuff, like up here on a dance stage? If not, then it's just me. But notice if I'm like kind of dancing around, it's because the lights are moving a little bit. So in order to be ready for what's coming in the church, there's three things that we're going to learn from this passage that we need. We need a strong defense, a strong offense, and high confidence. So those are going to be our three points today, strong defense, a strong offense, and high confidence. And from these two verses in Ephesians this morning, we're going to learn that we can have the utmost courage because of who gives us our defense, who is our offensive maneuvers, as we're going to learn, and who provides us the confidence. So first is defense. In the movie War Games, the first thing that they figure out that the, was that their threat was internal, right? Here's a little bit about the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. It was built under 2,000 feet, is built under 2,000 feet of granite. And the three-story buildings that are inside of this mountain are built on springs to protect against earthquakes. And they have 24-foot blast doors, a series of them, that can protect from a nuclear blast that happened 1.2 miles from the door. That close. The entire complex was built for one reason, to be impenetrable. Now, of course, in the movie, the weakest link is their network security. Their IT guy dropped the ball. So this high school student, in some sense, can get in and start playing this game unbeknownst to him with their supercomputer. They had a hole in their security that granted access to a bad actor that could wreak havoc. And I think our Christian life is much the same way. We work very hard to study the scripture, to study doctrine, to pray, to build our security defenses. And oftentimes, you know, they're, they're really strong. They can always be a little stronger. There's always things we want to make better about our Bible reading and our prayer. And I'm sure a lot of you have New Year's resolutions about those um, for, for this year. But the weakest part of our security is always where we're most vulnerable. Where we're most vulnerable is where bad actors come in and wreak havoc. What are some of these bad actors? Well, the Bible talks about three mainly. It talks about the devil, talks about the world, and talks about you. You're your own worst enemy. Now, one way I want to focus kind of all of these things and how these bad actors get in is, is, is this word accusing. The devil is often described as the accuser. And I think one of the, the weak links that we have, just one, we have, we have many in our, in our fallen, broken nature, but one of the weak links that we have is where um, our sins allow uh, Satan in his uh, way of looking at the world to get into our minds and thus accuse us that we are not actually good enough. And you know what? The world actually does the same thing. The world loves to show that Christians are hypocrites, and we are, right? We cannot actually practice what we preach. I stand up here every week, and I say things that I cannot actually live out in my life perfectly. The only thing that I can do is point towards Jesus who did it. All of us are insufficient. And of course, our own consciences accuse us. Not only those things that we've done in our past, but we, we look at these New Year's resolutions that we're going to be set out doing today, and then as soon as we fail them, Tomorrow, or probably today, let's be honest, uh, maybe next week. And if you're really strong, maybe you get to next month. And that's like, you're doing great. And when we fail them, though, our own consciences accuse us. I just don't have what it takes. Paul also had accusers. He had personally imprisoned many. I don't know if you know the story of Paul's life, but before he, had, um, before he was a Christian and converted, he actually persecuted Christians. Uh, he was a leader uh, in, in the Jewish faith, and he had persecuted this new sect of, of their denomination as it was conceived of back then. And Paul had been cruel to many early Christians. It says that Paul was in charge and stood by while Stephen was stoned. 
Like, just imagine this for a second. Mob justice being served on a man who was preaching the gospel by picking up stones and hurling them at him until he was dead. Paul, in some sense, authorized this. Paul probably had many Christians who had hated him for what he had done to their loved ones and family members. Paul probably had many former co-workers in Judaism who maligned him and tried to put him in prison, which actually, when he was writing Ephesians, he's actually in prison. He is chained to a Roman guard. He's under a house arrest of sorts. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But most certainly, the reason that he was there is because he's being maligned by his former friends. I'm sure Paul's conscience also accused him as he thought of some of the things that he stood by for not least of which was Stephen. The Ephesians had similar vulnerabilities, and so he's writing to people that that he knows are vulnerable. Are you ready? No, you're not ready. I know you have vulnerabilities. We learn from other parts of the Bible that the worship of Artemis, which is a a Greek god, and then Roman is Diana, I think it's the same one, uh, the god of fertility. We learn from archaeology that there were billboards in Ephesus advertising brothels, and that these brothels were sanctioned uh, by the religion of the day. So like in Paul's day, it was actually religiously good to visit the brothel. You're actually worshiping this God, and you're doing it appropriately if you paid the right taxes and, and you did all these other things that, that helped support the temple complex. We learned from history that Ephesus was a huge city, possibly one of the largest in its day, like the top five, rich with economic opportunity, but also rich with economic exploitation. There's no way that the Ephesians are innocent. There's no way the Ephesians don't have accusers from the outside and from the inside. How are the Ephesians going to have a strong defense? What do they need to know? And Paul says that they they need to know that they are saints. Now, the question really is, how can Paul call them saints? Knowing full well that they're not actually holy. I mean, you know what like saints means, right? It means they're like holy people. They like live like the way they're supposed to. And he looks at these people who are most certainly not holy, have weaknesses and vulnerabilities that bad actors can get into and wreak havoc, and he calls them holy. He calls them saints. Well, Paul can do this because he had experienced something similar himself, and he actually starts with himself. See, Paul starts this letter, and he declares that he's an apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word of, you know, those prepositions are so important, we can, we can sometimes skip over them, but that means that he's a messenger, apostle means messenger, of Christ Jesus, belonging to Christ Jesus. Paul's defense in the face of anybody who was reading this letter, even to us today, is not what I have done, but Jesus Christ owns me. And so when he turns to the Ephesians, he can say, Jesus Christ owns me. He's covered everything that I've done, and it's only because of him that I can proclaim this. And he turns to the Ephesians who are saints in Ephesus, and they are faithful. Why? Because they are in Christ Jesus. They belong to Christ Jesus. Paul's defense could not be in his good works and how many churches he's planted or how many people he's baptized. His only defense was that he was in Christ Jesus. The Ephesians had no hope for the good works that they had done. Whatever that they had claimed to mattered not at all. But that also gave them the freedom to say, even the evil that I've committed, Jesus Christ has covered it. If you've got an issue with me and my defense You have to take it up with Jesus. The only defense that you have is that you belong to Jesus Christ. If you're trying to rely on how good you've been 
how well you've obeyed, how much money you've given to the church, how forgiving you've been to your spouse and kids, it will always be a weak spot in your defense. You will never be as good as you need to be. One failure and temptation can bring your whole world crashing down, and it probably should already, because you should already have those things um, in your mind uh, that, that are your weak spots, <laughs> that show that you don't actually have what it takes. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we have to go back to again and again when we're in our weak spots. When we have them exposed by the devil or the world or our own consciences, we belong to Jesus. You are faithful in Jesus alone. This is no excuse to keep on sinning. Paul's going to talk about this um, in, in other places. He says, by no means should you keep on sinning. His blood was shed to purchase you from slavery to those accusations saying that you are always this. You know, you've always had that feeling like you set your New Year's resolutions and you're like, I'm just always this way. I can never defeat this one thing. There's this sin that I just can't quite conquer. And you can't. The only way that you are faithful, the only defense that you have is Christ Jesus. So what defense do we need for oncoming threats? We need Jesus. Our only defense is that we belong and are faithful in Christ Jesus, but to be ready for DEFCON 1 doesn't just mean that we have a good defense, but also a good offense. In the movie War Games, it's not necessarily good enough for them if they know a bunch of like inbound Russian thermonuclear missiles are coming if they don't have a response, right? And they've already like run the things, and so they're like queuing the missiles, you know, you see the blast doors or whatever opening, and the, the missiles getting prepped, and they're getting the launch codes and the targets aligned for how they're going to respond based on where the missiles are incoming from Russia. They need a response, an offensive maneuver to also hobble their enemy. So what response and offensive maneuvers do we need to be ready to do? Now, Paul begins by saying that he's an apostle, and that means an appointed or authorized messenger. Paul was authorized to deliver something very specific, the word of God to the Ephesians. Now, later, near the end of the book, this letter that he writes, he actually describes the word of God like a sword. <laughs> what is their offensive weapon? It is the word of God. What is their offensive maneuver? It is the word of God. But a lot of times we're confused about how to wield the word of God as an offensive weapon. Do we use it to destroy or do we use it for peace? Look how Paul starts his message to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. And imagine like getting a letter in the mail, right? Um, and just saying that like this letter is from God. I'm the authorized messenger of God. And you're like eager to get to that next line. You know, it's like four spaces down for whatever the correct formatting is, you know, and you go down and you look and it says grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Not judgment, although judgment is something that God will do. Not tremble and fear. Grace and peace. Now, grace means most literally a gift, unmerited favor. And peace actually directs to peace with God. So here's the thing, we're describing these DEFCON levels, and sometimes we think, you know, we're fighting um, the world. And, and in some sense, that's true. That's kind of the analogy I'm playing on. Uh, but really, the analogy that the Bible uses most often is that what we were at war with, who we were at war with, was God himself. We were enemies of God. Jesus redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and then made us agents of the light, and then gave us the sword of his word to go declare peace. Jesus has already conquered, right? 
Our offensive maneuver is to, like Paul, declare peace, the good news of peace to others with God's word. We are to wield God's word to declare peace. The burden of our offensive maneuver is actually to know scripture well enough that we can apply it to the lives of others in a meaningful way. And so I'm just going to slow that down a little bit. Burden is to know scriptures enough that we can apply it to others. I'm going to say we need to humbly study and rely on the Holy Spirit. Humble means that the sword of God's word can cut through flesh and bone. We, we learn about this uh, later. And so we wield it carefully. We recognize that uh, God's word is powerful. And it can be easily misused and, and used for our own agendas that we would rightly be judged for. That's why we have to study. Study requires work. Just like learning any sort of offensive maneuvers, you need to drill and practice, memorize, prepare, check on the supplies in your go bag to make sure that you're ready. The Word of God is not something that can be neglected, but something that needs to be checked on, studied, learned, memorized, put in our head, and be able to be used for peace. The only way that we can apply it in peace, though, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a second. It almost seems strange to us to say that we have an offensive weapon that we're going to use for peace. But we actually intuitively understand this, because of course weapons can be used for unjust violence, but all of us expect ourselves and others to use our weapons for peace, whatever those weapons may be, whether it's personal firearms or nuclear warheads. We expect them to be used, what? To keep the peace against bad actors. When weapons are used for aggression like Russia with Ukraine, we are rightly concerned. There are some Christians in some churches who try to wield God's word aggressively, not declaring peace but to destroy. And here's the thing, I don't want to say that it's just out there. We have the same temptation ourselves, and here's why we have the same temptation. We believe that our wielding of God's word is what saves. And when you start to believe that, you will do damage and not good. The only person who saves is Jesus. The only person who saves is the Holy Spirit. We're given the sword of God's word not to go around and try to convince people of our own convictions, but to point others to the one who can save. We're given God's word to be able to open it and say, see how he saves. See how he saved me. See how he can save you. None of us can make people believe, and we know this from our own experience. How many countless people tried to convince you to believe in your life? What did it actually take? The risen Lord coming by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to grab your heart and say, here I am. I came for you. I didn't come for some abstract war. I didn't come for some um, kingdom that doesn't have people in it. I came for people. I came to right every wrong. I came to win the war, and he did. Like some of you might be hearing that Jesus' kingdom is weak uh, because he, he doesn't use an offensive weapon correctly, but this is far from the truth. Jesus' kingdom is already established. The greatest battle already won. The tides of war already in his favor. There is no question about who's going to win. On that cross, he cried, it is finished.
Although enemies still reign in some quarters, the king himself is coming to remove all powers and principalities because all of them have been put under his feet. So the human beings that we we witness to, that we share with, we do it in peace because we recognize that we were in the same position. This is the argument that Paul is going to make a little bit later in Ephesians. We were also once enemies. We were also buried in the bunkers shooting at God's people. So too were we until God showed up in his word by the power of his Holy Spirit and said, peace, I'm here for you. Our offensive maneuver is to point people to God's word of peace, God's word that is able to save and rest in the fact that Jesus is the only one who can save them through the regeneration of his Holy Spirit. Okay, so in order to be prepared, we need to have a good defense and we need to have a good offense, but we also need to have high confidence. In the movie War Games, there's actually this scene where they're raising the DEFCON levels, and I, I can't remember if they're like three or two or something like that, and there's this voice over the loudspeaker in the background in NORAD just shouting, confidence is high, this is not a drill. Confidence is high, this is not a drill. And it's like this, there's confidence that, is, that this, is, this is not just an exercise, right? We're actually going to DEFCON 2. Sometimes in Christian lives, I think our confidence level is low in our intel. I think this might be for a couple reasons. First, we don't like to believe that we're at war. And that's actually a sign uh, that we have started to worship other gods as well. Maybe like money, success, power, our kids having the greatest opportunities. Because when we start doing both of these things, we'd say, well, it's not that actually urgent. Are we, are we supposed to fight against this? I think, I think it's actually good. Doesn't God, God wants me to have these things too, right? And so we don't hear the voice over the loudspeakers because we close our ears to it. We go, we're not at war. These things actually go together. When in fact, Jesus says you cannot love God and money. There's a second reason, though. It's that we think we're insignificant. If we're at war, we don't believe that we're on the bleeding edge, the first boots on the ground, as it were. But we're at some small home defense base that is barely staffed. And here's the, the way to phrase it. Like, do you, in your life in 2023, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, or wherever it is that you're from and work, does it matter in the eyes of God what you're doing this year? Do you honestly believe that God cares what you're doing in 2023? Do you honestly believe that God cared what happened in 2022? And if you really do believe that, how does it explain the sufferings? Because, of course, the blessings make sense. We're like, yeah, okay, God wants to bless us. That's great. But, like, when the truly hard things come, the loss of a loved one, the inexplicable derailments of your plans, the crippling depression, the ineffective evangelism of your friends, neighbors, and families, where's our confidence in that moment that we actually belong in this war? Paul, at the moment that he's writing this, as I mentioned, is chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. So there's actually a chain connecting them. And when he's writing these words, in verse 1, he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. It says there in verse 1, by the will of God. The will of God in Paul's life was immense. He had a picture for God's sovereignty that causes us discomfort. Paul, when he was in Ephesus, we read the story in Acts, he had an angry mob carry him to an amphitheater that you can still see today, 
At the time, it could hold about 20,000 people. And 20,000 people were shouting for his death because he had disrupted uh, the economy surrounding the worship of Artemis. So there's this uh, tourism and and, um, God-selling industry that had surrounded the worship of Artemis. And Paul was preaching against it. And so uh, somebody kind of incited this mob violence against him. They carried him over there. Eventually, the mob was was quelled, but he would end up in prison uh, for different reasons later. Uh, Paul says that despite all of this, being carried away by a mob, beaten, being in prison, he's there by the will of God. Paul's confidence, whether he was preaching the gospel, making tents, being chased down by an angry mob, or in prison, was that it was the will of God. The will of God is going to feature large in next week's sermon, and as we work through the letter of Ephesians, there's a lot in there about how um, God is sovereign over all events. And the fact that God is sovereign should radically alter your confidence in this world. This means that absolutely nothing happens to you that God doesn't will. Nothing. Nothing happens to you that God doesn't will. God willed Saul to be saved and become Paul, so he was. God willed that Paul would preach and incite a mob, so it happened. God willed that Paul would be in prison and and take a beating, and so he did. And that gave Paul confidence, no matter his circumstances. Now, of course, God's will in our lives, especially in the evil that we've experienced in our lives, raises a host of objections that we're going to be tackling throughout the book of Ephesians. I can't answer them all today. I'm sorry. Probably can't answer them all in the next 14 sermons either, but we're going to try. Um, It raises a whole host of questions for us, God's sovereignty and his will in the world. But i just like you to pause before your objections raise to the front of your mind and consider why God's sovereignty might be so beautiful for your life. All those verses about who knows if you were made for such a time as this, all true. You were made for exactly a time as this. All those worries about whether or not you're doing God's will, I just don't know. I think I made a decision that's out of God's will. I just really want to know what God's will is for my life. Gone. God wills it, and it is so. Let's think about Joseph for a second. Maybe you guys remember Joseph from the Old Testament. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He finally catches a break, but becomes a slave in in a wealthy man's household. And he actually kind of rises up the ranks, being very well educated. Um, And so he's in charge of of a lot in this powerful household. But the woman of the household attempts to seduce him. And when he refuses her advances, uh, she blames the charges on him, and he gets arrested and thrown in prison again. He helps people who are imprisoned wrongly to be reinstated to their positions, and all he asks of them is just remember me when you come out and advocate for me, because I'm also wrongly imprisoned. And you know what they did? They forgot him. In the middle of these awful, sinful, and terrible circumstances, he could say, God willed it. God willed that I be thrown sold into slavery by my brothers. God willed that I be wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. God willed that I be forgotten. Of course, there are complications for our theology and our philosophies. But instead of trying to force God into our own broken philosophical standards, how about we just read God's word for what it says? When Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant all these things that happened to me for good. Now, here's the thing. Not all of us get to experience the good that God had planned for our lives while we are still living. There are people, plenty of people throughout all of human history, who have experienced immense suffering 
And we'll never get to see what the resolution is in Jesus Christ until the end of all days. You can think of our Lord Jesus Christ or any missionaries, you know, that have been killed on the field. You could say they, they labored and they labored, and then what happened? They died. They never got to see the benefit of the fruit. But you know what gave all of them confidence in the middle of the worst part of their lives? Not my will, but yours be done. It's what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. The only person, Jesus, the only person to humbly submit to God's will. And you know what Jesus' will is for us? Jesus is God. You know what he wills for us? Here's what he prays in John 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus, the only one whose prayers are always answered because he's the only one who prays as he should, prayed this, I do not ask that you take them out of the struggles and the sufferings of this world, but that you preserve them in your word and truth until I come again and make all things new. No matter what his disciples face in their lives, they could have the confidence that God would preserve them until the end because Jesus prayed for it. They never had a reason to doubt Jesus. Well, that's great for the disciples, but what about us? Well, if you keep reading in that prayer, you know what Jesus says? Jesus kept on going, and he says, I do not ask for these also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for me. Our confidence is not in our own ability to correctly discern the times. Our confidence is not in our own ability to be able to identify what the biggest issue is to be tackled by Jesus in his kingdom. We prayerfully seek his guidance of the commander-in-chief, but frankly, we're unqualified to do so. We're like humble foot soldiers way down at the bottom. We just take the orders. Jesus prayed for you and for me, and our confidence is in Jesus who will not leave us behind or misread the enemy's plans. Our confidence is in Jesus to preserve his church. So we see that our only defense is Jesus. The only offensive maneuver that we have is his word by his spirit, and our only confidence is in Jesus. How do we know that the church is going to be ready for the raising DEFCON levels that it might be facing? We're most certainly not ready. Our defenses by themselves are shabby. Our offensive maneuvers are used for violence and not for peace. And our confidence tends to be in whatever we have done uh, versus whatever uh, Jesus has declared for us in our own smarts to be able to discern what's happening around us. The only one who is strong enough to carry the church through all of the DEFCON levels of oppression, uh, people pressing it from all sides, is the one who has authority over her. The one who defends her by laying down his life for hers to remove every spot and every blemish. The one whose words have the authority to declare and announce that peace has actually been accomplished. The one who prays for her that she might persevere unto the end. Christians, we are not ready to face what this world will bring. But Jesus is. He defends you. He declares his peace. And he prays for you. Jesus is our salvation. Amen? Now, Jesus intended us to understand that we do not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the Father. And I mentioned earlier in a a prayer that God spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. 
And Jesus, in some sense, could live off of the Word of God without nourishment. And yet when he turns to his disciples for the final meal, he turns to them and he says, I'm giving you this meal that you'll actually put in your mouth, taste upon your lips, and taste the wine as a symbol of how I promise to nourish you, how I promise to defend you, how my body and my blood speaks peace to you, and how your confidence ought to be in me. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you, for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This meal was instituted by Jesus himself to his disciples, to his brothers and sisters, to come and feast upon his flesh, to be nourished by what he has to offer. Now, who is this meal for? This meal is for all of those um, who who have declared uh, their allegiance to Christ this King and have been uh, members of a a church in good standing. So what that means— for us uh, is if you are baptized in a church and you proclaim allegiance to Jesus Christ and you've got no qualms with a brother or sister that you still need to go settle, uh, then this table is for you. If not, see, if you're not baptized, we'd love to have you partake with us next week. Come talk to myself or Kyle or any of our staff. We would love to help get you baptized into a church so that you might declare your allegiance to him. And if you have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, we'd ask that you'd go make that right because this actually declares unity in his body. We all partake of the same body and drink of the same blood. And so come back and partake another week. Now in a moment, I'm going to pray and then we can come down the center aisle and we can go to these serving stations on my right and my left. I believe gluten-free is on my left over here. So if you require that, please head that way and then notify your uh, server there. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Uh, Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Trinity, we thank you for this declaration of peace. That we are no longer at war with the devil, with ourselves, with the world, but that you, Lord Jesus, have conquered all of our enemies. We recognize, Lord, even beginning with ourselves, that we are not as we should be. That we still fight with our old selves and still um, get drawn back to those old ways of living. We ask, Lord, that even in this meal, you might nourish us to live as children of the living God. That we might live in faith of what you've done for us. That we might live in faith of the peace that you've declared. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements to their spiritual use. That you might actually nourish us from the inside out. That through this, the word of God might be brought to mind. That Jesus Christ was sacrificed for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.